You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Part of what happens, unless we acknowledge that the structures themselves have biases and that the structures themselves show up differently for us, is that imposter syndrome we believe is ours. And so much of my work and my conversations with all these women is freeing us to realize the structure is also reinforcing and creating some of those messages. And so it's not us. It's not our insecurities or our deficiencies. It's the structure that's making us feel that way, in addition to some of the things we can also work on. When it comes to your money, empowerment is key. You need confidence in your ability and your strategy. Visit Edelman Financial Engines at planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because it's time to take control of your financial future and feel empowered about what's ahead. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for being with us today on Her Money. On this show, we talk a lot about money confidence. We talk about how we can feel good about the decisions that we make with our finances. We also talk about career confidence and what it looks like to negotiate a salary and earn what we're actually worth. Today, we're going to talk about how we can be more confident in every aspect of our lives. As women, there will be many occasions, some of them so subtle that we may not even notice them at first, when we're asked to conform and perform in very specific ways so that we can be accepted or taken seriously. It can be exhausting. And nobody feels this more than women of color. For far too long, women of color have been asked to hide parts of themselves in order to fit the structure of corporate America that was built for white men. And so the problem that women of color have in trying to succeed in a model that wasn't created for them is that their needs are often not taken into account. And so they learn to hide the parts of them that don't fit in. Oftentimes, these are the very parts that make women feel powerful. It's a vicious cycle. And for decades, it's left women of color questioning their own worth day after day after day. All of this came into stark focus during the pandemic when women of color saw that corporate America was capable, was capable of making many changes, some of them quickly, and yet still had so much to do where diversity and inclusion are concerned. Research in 2021 revealed that one in three women of color are now considering leaving the workforce, highlighting just how little had actually been done to change the collective pain points that these women feel. It's past time for us to break this cycle. And so today, we're going to take one step in the right direction. We're going to walk through how to start dismantling outdated power structures, how to create lasting change that can work for every woman with Deepa Prashathaman, author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa is the co-founder of Information, which is spelled N-formation, 
which provides space for professional women of color. She's also a woman and public policy program leader in practice at the Harvard Kennedy School. And before this, she spent 20 years at Deloitte and was the first Indian American woman to make partner in the company's history. Deepa, hi, welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I've been wanting to have you on this show for a really long time because of all of the impressive work that you've done. And then I saw your book and I thought, okay, we got to talk right now. Tell me about you and tell me about information. Yes. So I spent, as you said, 20 years in a corporate structure in one company, and I had a wonderful career. There were a lot of things that came with being a first, which uh, were challenging, but were also really exciting. And part of what I wanted to figure out as I got later in my career was bigger questions around purpose came up. I had some issues around my health come up. And I started gathering women of color to figure out, you know, where else might I want to go? What other company might be a friendly women of color place? And um, it started as small one-on-one gatherings over time that turned into a dozen dinners across the country with 20 and 30 women each. So I met 300 women of color. And we had these fascinating conversations that I thought would take an hour or two, six, seven, eight hours later, we were still in the room talking, talking about the challenges, talking about microaggressions, racism, you know, all the things that show up in a structure that we've never given ourselves permission to talk about before. And those dinners became really the fodder for the book and also for the company information because what we were able to create, and I did that with my then business coach, my now partner, Ra Goddess. And part of what we saw was there there was such a need to create space for women of color to talk about what it's like to rise and thrive and navigate workplaces. And so that's what the book is about, but that's also what our company does. We create safe space for women of color to come together in community. You mentioned that being the first, the first Indian woman of color to reach partnership at Deloitte was, you know, a mixed bag. Tell me about that. Tell me what was good, but also what was bad. Yeah, so one of the terms I love to use, it was visible and invisible at the same time. And that is a term that I think really applies to the experience of a lot of women of color in the workplace. So it was amazing in that I had so many opportunities coming my way. I was really good at what I did. And as a result of that, I was propelled and supported and all of those things. But because I was a first, I didn't always see models that looked like me or role models that came before me. And so a lot of my challenges, and this is not true for all women of color, but a lot of my challenges were trying to deal through the self-doubt and the self-confidence I needed to find when I innately maybe didn't feel like I belonged because I didn't see myself in front of me. And there were things that I was doing, maybe even being suggested to do, to edit myself or to find ways to fit in the model that came before me. And that does something to us as women, and especially as women of color. And we don't talk about it enough. So for me, it was actually very confusing. Like here I am really successful, but I don't feel great. And I don't necessarily feel powerful. And then to have those dinners and to find other women and realize this is an epidemic is what I call it. And in fact, many of us are sick and tired and traumatized is a conversation we need to have because it's something that happens in these structures and it's not all us or something that we are deficient in. And that was really the big learning that I had to unlearn and then fill in with new practices and new ideas. I am not a woman of color, but I can relate to everything you're saying. 
I feel like I've been there. I feel like I have been asked to edit myself. I feel like sometimes I don't feel like I belong or haven't felt like I belong in certain power structures. Can you give me, though, an example or two of what happened to you or what happened to the women that you spoke to? Because I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand what it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the stories I tell in the book, and I love this because it was a friend, a really good friend of mine, and I opened the book with this, is I had just made partner. Um, He had made partner too. This was someone I knew from graduate school. And we were celebrating making partners in our respective firms. And here we are at at this fancy dinner, you know, sitting in front of the, in, in our glasses of champagne, and we're about to cheers. And I'm sharing, like, I'm excited I just made partner, but I'm also really nervous about what comes next and the pressures I was already feeling. Because it felt like, by the way, all eyes were on me, right? I had to succeed not only for myself, but for everyone after me and everyone around me. And so that is different, I think, for women and women of color. We feel that responsibility. But we're raising our glasses, we're cheersing. I'm saying, you know, I'm struggling with what comes next. And he pauses and he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're a twofer. You check multiple boxes. You are golden. You're going to have nothing to worry about in the next years that come. You're going to be given opportunities left and right. But people like me, because he was a white gentleman, are going to struggle. Like, I'm going to have to prove myself over and over again, but you, you're not going to have to do anything. And I share that story, and I like that story because he was such a good friend and because I felt so wounded, so deflated in the moment, so much felt personal and difficult, Mm -hmm. but it also made me question, is that how everyone else sees me? Do people think I just got the opportunity, not because I was great at what I did, but as a result of the checkboxes I checked? It's also a really great story because I struggled in how to respond to him. I think I almost shut down in that moment and I tried to get through dinner and move on. We did talk about it later, but I couldn't even put words around what it was like in the moment. And I think that's so true of the experience of women of color. Things happen, microaggressions, racism, small comments, exclusions is another way someone described it to me this morning. Like there are things that happen that exclude us that may not be conscious, but they make us feel so caught off guard, so confused, so much about questioning if we belong. And that happened in that moment. And if it's happening with a friend, what's happening with everyone else? So that's one example. There's another example I love to share in the book. And this is a Black woman in the Midwest. And she said, shared with me, you know, and almost in tears as she was sharing it, that she is one of the only Black women in the company, if not the only. And she's also one of the only, if the only Black person that many of the people in her company have ever met. And she was trembling as she said that to me because she said, I worry about what I wear, what I eat, how I talk, not just the job I do because I am representing my entire race. And as she shared that, there was such a weight to it that I don't think we fully appreciate or you can't appreciate if you're not sitting in that situation, that it wasn't just her job and who she was. She had taken on all these other responsibilities as a result of what she was. And I found that to be common with a lot of the women of color I met with. Not Maybe not that that exact story, but the weight of I'm walking into this room and so much more than the job and who I am and how I perform. Um, And that is a real conversation we have to have. It does feel different. It feels exhausting is how it feels. It feels exhausting. It feels exhausting. And again, look, I'm a white woman and I'm very aware of the privilege that comes with that. But I also relate to so much of what you're saying. I mean, I remember going back to work after I had my children and feeling like 
I can't just do it well. I have to do it better because they're all looking at me and thinking like her head is checked out of this game. I felt like I was representing all the future women in my company who might want to sometime have a child, and I had to continue to do it really well. And the same was true when I started talking about money on the Today Show. You know, I was this 30-year-old woman, right, in a job that had previously been done by 60-year-old men with gray hair. And I knew that I had been hired because I was a 30-year-old woman, right? I knew they were looking for different But I also felt this pressure. I had to be right. I had to be first. I had to be on it all the time. And I imagine that that's exactly what you and the 500 women that you spoke to for your book feel like every day. Absolutely. And I want to say, and I should say this at the onset, Jean, that part of what I'm finding, and my book was written for women of color. I really was conscious of that. I wanted it to be the book that I never had. And there's not enough business books written by us, written for us. But a lot of what is in the book applies to everybody, not just white women, not just women in general, but also even applies to my white male peers of my age cohort. Because I think all of us are asking, how much space should work take in our lives? How do we want to work? What have the last few years taught us? So I think this is really a bigger question about what we value, how we work, the space that work takes up in our lives. And I think that pertains to everybody. So I just want to say that at the outset. But I also did find some patterns that were unique to women of color. And you're right. I mean, so many of the Black women in particular that I interviewed have been taught early on messages. You have to work two times or four times as hard to get just as far. And so that there was this message early on from childhood of having to overwork and overperform. So many of the Latina and Asian women I met were taught, don't rock the boat and keep your head down and just go with the flow. And that doesn't always work in corporate cultures when you're also rewarded for speaking your mind and speaking, you know, sharing your ideas and what's not working. And so these messages are ingrained, they're deep. And that's really what I'm talking about is understanding where those come from and then finding ways to reprogram the ones that don't serve us anymore and really leaning into the ones that do. And I call that shedding and carrying. I'd love to hear more about shedding and carrying. Mm -hmm. I also want to hear about isolation and burnout. I mean, you've said that the accomplishment in your case led to these feelings of isolation and burnout. And I'm wondering how you dealt with it, how you got through it, how you got past it. Um, And also, what did you finally say to that guy who was the good friend of yours who had made the check the box comment? Because I think having the words to use to address these microaggressions, this one was not so micro, by the way, is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few parts to that. So one is, let me start with uh, my friend Walter. That's what I call him in the book. That was not the first time he had said something like that. So I think for me, unfortunately, it was something that had been building. And by the fourth or fifth one, I found a way to say, like, that's not really helpful to me. We ended up having a hard conversation about it where I shared what it made me feel like and what I thought he was saying. And although he appreciated it, I don't know that it changed his understanding. So I tried to get him to empathize with what with how it felt for me. He didn't say those things anymore, but I'm not convinced I changed his thinking around the idea of his life was going to be harder than mine, which is fascinating. And that's not my work to do, right? That's his. And so I had to get comfortable with that. And in all candor, he stopped being as close a friend as he had been at one point. And that's one of the main reasons. So just to share that, I think it's real. I think the other thing is that I have learned to practice. And this sounds really trite or maybe really simple. And I say this to women of color and I say this to 
allies who I call co-conspirators because I want them to do active work too, is practice what you're going to say. I think it's naive to think in this day and age that someone's not going to say something that offends you, makes you feel like you don't belong or is not racist or sexist in the workplace. And so have something prepared. You know, I tell women to say three simple things like that doesn't work for me. That really made me feel uncomfortable is this how you meant it to sound, you know, or can you try again? That really is not appropriate. Wait, I'm going to stop you right there because I want to say them again, right? Those are really, really good. And if I were taking notes, I would write them down. Yes. Okay. So what's the first one? I find three new ones every time. So I think it's along the lines of that doesn't work for me. Okay. Right. That's all you have to say. That doesn't work for me. It will usually make someone pause. A second one can be that really hurts me. And here's why. So in this case, you're stopping the situation and sharing and trying to get them to empathize with what's wrong in that situation, which might have been what I should have done with Walter. And the third one might just be even a little bit more assertive. Like that really offends me. And you can explain why you can choose not to explain why. But I think it's just having a few statements that in the moment are ready for you. And even as allies and co-conspirators, I want others to practice that. Because if you witness something, it's hard to intervene. It's hard to know what to do. And so you have to find a way to pause the conversation, share why it's not appropriate, figure out if that's the moment to really unpack that, because it might not be the moment, but find a way to put a page mark so you can come back to that conversation. When you are trying to be a good ally, a good co-conspirator, I really love that term. What does that look like to you? Yeah, and part of why I want people to be co-conspirators and not allies, and it's a term I've seen others use, is because I think allies suggest that you can just say I'm an ally. That that makes you an ally. And what I think we really need is to move from bystanding, right, and watching situations happen to everyone realizing it's their problem too. It's their work too to change work cultures. And so that's really where I'm focused is having people act in the moment. So when someone does say something inappropriate, whether it's a microaggression or a racist comment, it's not up to me as a woman of color to correct that. Like, why can't other people say that really is probably not the right thing to say, you know, on my behalf as well. And so I think it's part of realizing that changing culture is hard and changing norms are hard and it can't just be on women of color to do it. Like we will when we can, but as you said, we're tired, we're traumatized, we're exhausted. It can't fall upon us. And To come back to your other question, you asked me how it showed up for me. So my story, unfortunately, is not a happy story. Like, I ended up getting really sick. So I found myself a few years ago having sold the biggest project of my career. It was a career, another career-making project. And I was finding myself working 20 hours a day. I just got married, just sold the biggest deal. I was really excited, but found myself overworking. And part of what I had grown up believing and being taught was that productivity and working hard would get you what you needed and what you wanted. So my superpower used to be overworking. Like that's what I was really good at. I now know that's probably not my superpower. My superpower is more listening to myself and other ways of working. But I overworked myself and I got so sick that I ended up spending eight months in bed. And I had 15 doctors. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is one of the doctors I met stopped me after a multitude of tests. There, I had all these growing symptoms over a couple of years that no one could understand. And she said to me, I think your job is killing you. And not that the job was actually killing me, but the lifestyle of being on the road, of eating, you know, hotel food all the time, of not sleeping in my bed, of three cities a week was very normal for me, was a really challenging way to live and was probably not healing my bodies in the way that I needed to be healed. And so for me, it came as a very, I think, big message of I wasn't listening to the smaller messages of, 
you know, feeling like I was seen and heard and my body just rebelled and decided I needed to take a break. And that time was really radical time for me. One of the women I interviewed calls it radical sabbatical time. Oh, I love that. Where I really got to ask. I love that. (laughs) It's just safe space. There's time where I could ask myself, I loved that world and that life and that career, but it wasn't serving me anymore. So who did I want to be and how did I want to show up and what was important to me? And given so much of what you talk about is also around money, it was really big questions around identity and title and money. Is that really what defines me? Or if I moved into a new phase where how I make change and how I help others is more important to me. It's fascinating. And I think the other thread running through your story is, I mean, you needed help. Right. And often, I think as women, particularly when it comes to our money, we don't realize when we have to ask for help. And we don't realize that we can't expect ourselves, especially when it comes to creating a real financial plan to do it all ourselves. Edelman Financial Engines is our wonderful sponsor. And now is one of those times during their calendar year where you can visit their website. It's planefe.com slash hermoney. And you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor where you can get that help. And you'll work with an expert to create a plan to help build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth. I mean, as Deepa has been talking about, as women, we tend to be doers, but sometimes we need the advice, the right advice in order to just get it done. I'm talking with Deepa, founder of Information. So the conversation over the last couple of years, Deepa, has really changed, right? I mean, we've gone from this lean-in mentality to being more accepting of burnout, being more accepting of isolation. And you've said that the conversation around imposter syndrome, which is where we began this conversation, is also changing. How's that happening? And if you are one of those women who are subject to it, how do you take the steps to move past those feelings in yourself? Yeah, so much of my work is helping women, all women, understand that there are structural challenges around us that might contribute to how we think of ourselves, how we think of our confidence, how we show up in the world, right? The book that I wrote is really talking about how the structure affects us. And I don't think until the last few years there's been permission to talk about how the structure is different for different groups of people. Part of what I want us to understand is that the workplace is not a meritocracy. And the idea that it is a meritocracy sets so many women and women of color up to overwork, to really not understand when things don't go in their way or when you know certain behaviors are reinforced and they don't work for us. And so that's really part of what I'm trying to highlight. And why I think that's so important is because With imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome, as I define it, is this feeling that you don't know, right? And that you lack confidence in certain spaces. And you've probably talked about this many times where men are taught, you know, just to fake it till you make it and that's okay. And for women, I think that's a real struggle. And I think part of what happens, unless we acknowledge that the structures themselves have biases and that the structures themselves show up differently for us, is that imposter syndrome we believe is ours. And so much of my work and my conversations with all these women 
is freeing us to realize the structure is also reinforcing and creating some of those messages. And so it's not us. It's not our insecurities or our deficiencies. It's the structure that's making us feel that way in addition to some of the things we can also work on. So I talk a lot in the book about the power of me and the power of we, that we need to do work to, you know, reprogram whether it's our ideas around money, worth, self-care, but then we also need to find others so that we can do that work together and reinforce and help each other when bad situations come up. Where do you think we are along the curve of change? I mean, if you're a woman of color and you've got scars from the battles that you have just fought for years in corporate America and you're just done, right? If you're hoping for a change, are things on the road to getting better? The message in the book is really positive. And the message I feel when I meet with women of color and women, right, right now is although it's been hard and, you know, people are tired, raw. My business partner and I did a recent TED Talk and we use a line in there based on some research we did that, you know, white women are exhausted, but women of color are traumatized. And so I do want to emphasize, I think there is something else going on. I think as we understand racism and we feel it in our bodies, something different happens to us. And that is part of the process we're going through. So I do think we're in a moment where people are feeling more of their feelings. And I worked with a number of psychologists and professors and things. When you start to feel your feelings, you almost get even more exhausted, more tired, more traumatized until you let that go through your body. So I do want to acknowledge that. But I also am so optimistic. I mean, the women I met are so amazing, are so positive. It feels like there's more opportunities and more possibility now, not only for us as individuals, but to make change than ever before, because we've seen the breaks in the system, because we've seen how the last few years and less travel and less commuting have changed the environment. Like we, we are seeing those things. And so there's more possibility, I think, of redefining. But I think we need to lean in together in this space to work and figure out what is going to work for us. And how do we want to remake these structures? Because that's hard work and that's very different and it requires collective conversations and a different way of thinking and a different way of of talking about these topics. I think that you're so right about the difference between exhaustion and trauma. I had a recent conversation on this show with Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, and I heard the trauma. I saw the trauma on her face and heard the trauma in her voice. And you're absolutely right. There is a big distinction. What is your best piece of advice to, first, the women who are the first and the few and the only? And what's your best piece of advice to white women who want to be better co-conspirators? Yeah. My advice to women of color is to really step back and figure out what you need to change for yourself and what you value and what boundaries you want to set, right? I think that's the most important thing. Like as you operate in workplaces or in corporate structures, especially, you are rewarded for overworking. You are rewarded for groupthink sometimes. And so really knowing for yourself where your boundaries are, and that is the work that you kind of have to do on your own. Um, but also finding community. That's why we created information. So finding other women of color so you can talk about what's happening so you don't carry that burden forward or don't have places to talk about it and release it. There is something so powerful in being witnessed that happened in those dinners that we've carried forth to the organization we've created. So it's that idea of, I guess, drawing your boundaries, simply put, and then finding others that understand your pain so you can you know, unburden yourself. I think that's what I would tell women of color. For allies, and especially white women, there was something so interesting in the research that we did in the fall with the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative, and it's my favorite stat of the research that we did, and it says 91% of white women say they want to help women of color, and only 9% are. 
So 91 versus nine. And I found that shocking because I think everyone wants to. That's why I say everyone wants to be an ally, but what are you actually doing? So my ask or my suggestion to white women is to really pay attention to the disconnect between intent and activity and action and really lean into truly helping. It doesn't have to be that you're helping every minute of the day and you're giving away all of your opportunities, but pick one or two mentees, you know, pick one or two places you can share your wisdom. It can be small things, but we need to actually change the intent into action. That's really what my ask would be. Deepa Pershathaman, the book is The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Where can we find more about you and information? Yes. So everything is on my website. So Deepa, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U.com. There's information about the book, about speaking, and then also about the company information itself. And I'd love to see people there. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's so important. So I appreciate your work as well. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union, one of the nation's leading credit unions, and it measures its success by empowering its members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic. It wants it to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence, and its caring service gives you peace of mind. If you want to see if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer, all you have to do is go to www.bcu.org. And Catherine is in the studio with me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I'm so glad we could have Deepa on because she had been on my radar for a while. Several of the members of the broader Harmony community had recommended that we chat with her. Minda Hartz, who we've had on the show a couple of times, as well as Karen Ortiz, who we had on the show. She's an administrative judge uh, in New York for the EEOC. So I'm very glad we could make this conversation happen. Absolutely. I thought she was terrific. I liked how she explained things. And I love the word co-conspirator because sometimes she's right. I mean, we talk about being an ally and you want to be an ally, but you want to do something. And personally, I just like the idea of being conspiratorial to change the system and make things better. I love that. And I think there's such an element of that in her money and with women and money, right? Like we have to be conspiratorial to break the gender wage gap, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have to share our secrets. We have to share our secrets. We have to take people into our confidence. There was a viral tweet I saw the other day of this woman who just like tweeted out all her salary information on her way out the door of her last job. And like, this is how we create change. Yes. We get things out into the sunlight. That is stealth. I love that. Yeah. Actually, I hope that you retweeted it. (laughs) (laughs) We've got some questions. So let's go ahead and take them. Yeah. Our first note today comes to us from Lori. She writes, hello, Harmony team. I'd love to see an article on the website or a few minutes on your fabulous podcast about the best options for investing for children's futures. I'm aware of 529s, investment accounts that you can open in a child's name and savings account, but I'm not sure which, if any, of these is the best route or if there are other good choices. If you're expecting a newborn this year, where should you park that money for the child's future and when should you start? Thank you so much for your time and all the work you do. So, Lori, I 
I'm going to offer you both. I went to hermoney.com where we have a very handy searchable navigation tool. I just typed in 529 and clicked search. We actually have 95 different articles that mention 529s and about how to use them, about whether 529s are the best option, about what a 529 is. And so if you want to go there and check out some of those, that would be fantastic. But let me spend a few minutes talking about why I think that for most people, 529s are the best option. First of all, 529s are easy and ubiquitous. Every state has at least one 529. Many states have more than one 529. You get some tax benefits in certain states for contributing to their state's program. There are even a couple of programs where you might get a matching dollar or two. But there are important tax benefits that are associated with these accounts. You you put in um, some money. It grows tax deferred. And when you withdraw it and you use it for qualified educational expenses, you don't pay any taxes on it. And unlike Coverdell education savings accounts, which you often hear about as education savings accounts, you can put significantly more money into a 529 than you can into a Coverdell each year. They also have benefits over just putting money into a UGMA or a UTMA, which are uniform gift or uniform trust for minors accounts. And the advantage is that you can maintain control of the money. If you are the owner of a 529, then you get to decide how that money is used. Once your child reaches the age of majority, 18 or 21, the money in the uniform gift to minors account or uniform trust to minors account, that's theirs. And if they decide, as one financial advisor put it to me at one point, that they want to use it for a Harley rather than Harvard, you are out of luck. So I like them for those reasons. I also think you have a choice. Saving for College is a wonderful website that you can go to. It ranks 529 plans so you can see which are the best ones based on their expenses, based on how they invest the money. And I used New York State's 529 plan, which is called New York Saves and is managed by Vanguard in order to put my own kids through school in order to fulfill my half of the college obligation with my ex-husband. If you're expecting a newborn, I'd say start. You may not be able to contribute all that much at this point. You may have other obligations that are getting in your way, but I think a habit of making contributions into a 529 is a really important thing to start. I also think that it's important to let the rest of your family know that you have this account. So if you've got parents, if you've got grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends who want to give your child a gift that may be longer lasting or more meaningful than another toy or thing, tell them you've got a 529 and that they are invited and you would be so grateful if they made a contribution as well. The one thing that we don't want to do is to soft pedal 
our own retirement contributions in order to more fully fund the 529 because although there is financial aid for college, there is no financial aid for retirement. If you're looking to straddle that line, the other account to look at is actually a Roth IRA because you can park money in a Roth IRA now. You can invest it forever, and down the road, you can make a decision about whether to use it for college or retirement. So unlike other accounts, it gives you that flexibility. But I hope that's helpful, and I would highly encourage you to check out everything that we've written at hermoney.com. There is a wealth of information. Yeah, there really is. And to your point about the uh, Roth IRA, that's a nice uh, dovetail into our next question. Ah. Our next question comes to us from Anna. She writes, Hi, Jean and team. Can you explain what a backdoor Roth is, how to set one up, and what the advantages and disadvantages are of using them? I keep hearing them mentioned on financial forums, but I've yet to find an explanation that I can really understand. Thanks. Okay, so here's the deal about Roth IRAs. If you make too much money, you are not allowed to make a contribution to a Roth IRA. So for 2022, once you pass $144,000 in income, if you're a single person, $214,000 if you're married filing jointly, a Roth is just out of your grasp. You can't make a contribution right into a Roth. And many people view Roths as the preferential vehicle for retirement investing because they believe that either their tax rate will go up in the future, so they're better off paying their taxes now, or taxes overall will go up in the future. We're talking about income taxes, and so they're better off paying the taxes now. A backdoor Roth is basically where you just put money into a traditional IRA, and you convert those funds into a Roth IRA. You pay some taxes on the conversion, and you're done. And even though you didn't qualify to contribute to a Roth, you now have some money in a Roth, and that money gets to grow tax-free forever until you take it out in retirement or you don't take it out in retirement and you pass it along to your heirs. So it's a very, very nice vehicle. Now, the one thing to know is that if the money in your traditional IRA has been sitting there for a while and you've made some money on it, you will owe taxes on those gains when you make the conversion. Sometimes that can be a little bit complicated. So you're going to want to educate yourself on something called the pro rata rule for backdoor Roths. And rather than getting super duper complicated about all of this, let me just say that let's say if when you look at all of the money in your traditional IRA, let's say 70% of that money is pre-tax money, 30% of that money is after-tax money, that ratio is going to determine what percentage of the money that you convert to a Roth is going to be taxable. 
and I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, so I'm going to stop and just tell you we did pretty much an entire show on Roths and backdoor Roths. We did it with Ed Slot, who calls himself Mr. IRA. He's the man when it comes to these things. And so I am going to defer the rest of this conversation to him and suggest that you just take another half hour, 45 minutes, and listen to our Ed Slot episodes. We did one with him talking about the topic, and we did another answering questions, and you're going to be good to go. Yeah, and if there's something that you're curious about that we didn't address, Ed Slot is a friend of her money and would happily come back. So you can always email me a follow-up question to mailbag at hermoney.com, and I will pick it up. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Jean. And in today's Thrive, who doesn't like free stuff? Well, you can get some of it on your birthday, which rolls around, of course, every year. And in addition to being a great opportunity to throw yourself a party, which I am 100% in favor of, it's an excellent time to take advantage of all the loyalty and rewards programs that you've signed up for over the years. At hermoney.com, we got a whole list of retailers and brands across a bunch of categories, food, beauty, apparel, that offer up free goodies for their members on their birthdays. For starters, Starbucks. Members of the Starbucks Star Rewards Program who sign up using a Starbucks card can get a free drink or food item on their birthday. It's their choice. There's no cost limit, so bring on that extra syrup and extra shot and almond milk, please. Also, at Einstein Brothers Bagels, members of the Schmear Society get a free egg sandwich within 14 days of their birthday. If cosmetics are more your speed, Benefit offers a free brow sculpting on the week of your birthday at any standalone Benefit location. And Ulta's Ultimate Rewards members can get a free birthday gift anytime during the month, which is usually a cute little travel lipstick or powder of some sort. And the same goes for members of Sephora's Beauty Insider program. If you're looking for clothing or accessories, check out Kohl's, where the rewards program members get $10 in Kohl's cash at any time during the month. And at DSW and Famous Footwear, you can score $5 off any purchase. Whenever you celebrate, we hope you have a blast and know just how appreciated you are by all of us right here at Her Money. I want to say a big thank you to all of you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Deepa for the great conversation and for the opportunity to really talk about what's going on for women of color in corporate America. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We really like hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.